and bugs that need to be fixed. And so if for some reason you missed the weekend, uh, please somehow, and given the fact that that book says we're crazy busy, I don't know where you'll fit in the chance to listen to those messages since you weren't here, but somehow you'll need to listen to the messages. Because sometimes living the Christian life with grace misplaced makes everything distorted, heavy, difficult, hard to do, things crash a lot. So please make use of that. Uh, One other brief uh, halfway announcement. This is not a full announcement because it's uh, something still in in, in process here. Uh, We are desiring is the best way to say it, desiring to do a Christmas program this year. We have, we have hit a little bit of a glitch in uh, our September time frame for a couple of reasons. One, we, we were thinking to do something a little bit different this year that uh, on the one hand sounds more complicated and the other hand it's a little more simple, but it was going to involve doing a dinner together. We're going to turn the whole place in here into a dinner uh, for the two nights of our Christmas program and we would have a program that would accompany the dinner. So you could invite folks to come to a dinner and we thought that would open up some more venues of relating to people a little differently than what we have done and just having them sit in a seat and listen to a program they get to sit around tables with us and get a chance to connect with folks a little bit more. And then the, the program that we present would accompany the meal. Uh, doing that is a more expensive venture, and, and we already invest a significant amount in the Christmas program each year that takes two days for us to do it. This would be significantly more cost to do this. Uh, and it happened to be something, as we were considering it, that we're also seeing giving trends that are, are not encouraging. And so whether or not things have changed in our midst in terms of us as a church and how we are approaching and handling giving, it, it's making us at this point reconsider things that we're doing. So when we look into the next six months and we say, can we do that? Uh, this is not where I want us to be. I don't ever want us to be in a place where we're sitting, can we do that? And we look at a bunch of numbers and say, can we do that? I don't know. Uh, we, you know we want to walk in faith and be led by God and take steps of faith. However, we can't do that without you doing that. So you can't say, hey, well, you know, your leaders lead the church, man. You know, walk by faith. Uh, okay, I'm going to turn around and tell you the same thing. You got a checkbook in your pocket? Walk by faith. Give the way God's calling you to give so that we don't have to stop and consider are we about to be irresponsible in some of what we're doing. So uh, please consider that. We want to lean forward in faith and we're trying to do that. And some of you have been asking about are we doing a Christmas program this year. Uh, We are in the works. We hope by next week to be able to make an announcement on that. If you are a person who plays an instrument, sings, uh, I don't know, you dance, juggle, whatever it is that you can do to be a part of that program... December 15th and 16th would be the dates for the program. If you want to look into your calendar and say, hey, let me set that aside, uh, that would be when the program would take place. And, and again, hopefully next week we can give you a little bit more definitive thoughts on how we're proceeding with that. All right. Open your word to Acts chapter 15. We're continuing our quest to discover what does normal look like in the Christian life. Let me start by asking you this question. Have you ever gotten in a fight over what you believe? You don't have to raise your hands. I don't want to give away which one of y'all are more brawlers than others. 
but but really think about it. When was the last time you got in a fight? Not necessarily a fist fight, although maybe some of that's happened. But you got in a fight, pretty sharp discussion and disagreement over what you believe the Bible says versus what somebody else believes about that same topic. And you got in a little bit of a verbal fisticuff over that issue. It wasn't an easy conversation. It was a conflicting conversation. It was a challenging, difficult conversation. It was perhaps even left awkward between you and the other person as you discussed that. All right, well, the, the title this morning is Fights Worth Having. And I know that's kind of an odd thing because sometimes we think about Christianity and our thoughts about Christianity is this, I don't know, it's this sweet, kind setting, the God of love, and he comes alongside and helps us through all the difficulties of life. It just, it just feels wholesome. It's Christianity, for goodness sake. You don't fight in Christianity. And yet here in Acts chapter 15, that's exactly what people do. They fight. So here's what I want to do as we seek to, to get a revelation as to what informs us as a people living in the 2013 in the suburbs of New Orleans, Louisiana, far away in time and uh, location from where these scriptures originate. What informs us about what's normal in our Christian life? That's what we're after in studying the book of Acts. Well, let me just... Before we read chapter 15, let me point out to you a few things we're going to find normal in the Christian world in Acts chapter 15. First, we're going to find that error is normal. Encountering error, doctrinal error, and I want to say this, emphatic area. Doctrinal area, you're totally raw off. Emphatic area means you're off in the thing that you place the emphasis on. You should be emphasizing this. It doesn't mean that this is necessarily wrong. But it's not as important as this. And so you're emphasizing this. You should be emphasizing this. All right, that's, that's, you're going to encounter that in the church. And when you do, do you know how to respond to it? When error floats up to your shoreline, do you know what to do with it as a Christian? Uh, conflict is normal in the body of Christ. Conflict is normal. There's going to be words in this passage, pay attention to them, like disagreement and debate and dissent among the members of the body of Christ. So if you've bumped into that, you shouldn't be going, oh, oh, somehow I'm out of bounds. You know, God can't be here. This this is ungodliness. Uh, Well, in scripture, when people attempt to live for the glory of God, they have debates with each other and disagreements and even dissension takes place in the church. Uh, Leadership decisions are going to be made by a few and transferred to a bunch of others. And that's normal, right? There's about to be a council meeting that takes place. There's a conflict amongst many, many believers. A few are going to gather in Jerusalem. They're going to consider the matter. They're going to make a decision as best they're able to, and they're going to give that back to a bunch of other folks. They're not going to take a vote of the masses. They are not going to consider everybody's opinions. They're going to do what they can to lead, and that's normal in the church. And the last thing you're going to find in this chapter is correction is normal. Finding out that you're wrong and being adjusted is normal. 
So let's not treat that like someone came and adjusted my view or adjusted my opinion and it was just this horrible thing. Well, why was it horrible? I mean, they come with weapons. You know, they shamed you. They tarred and feathered you and embarrassed you in public. What, what, what made that a horrible thing? Well, I don't know. It was just, just the mere fact that somebody would point out that I'm wrong. Sometimes that's how we feel. Well, that's normal. It's normal stuff. And we're going to learn a little bit about normal today when we read this passage. All right, Acts 15, verse 1. It says, but some men came down from Judea. They came down from Judea and Jerusalem to Antioch, which is where the, we've been located here in the last several chapters. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. Not just debate, but dissension and debate. And not a small one. They had no small one. This was grande size debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, do you know why they had to go to Jerusalem and Antioch? Because they couldn't work their problems out with each other there in Antioch. Right? So bumping into situations that just can't be resolved in this one meeting that we're going to have. Or they, it just can't even be resolved amongst us. It, we're going to need to go outside of us, whether it's husbands and wives, whether it's a small group, whatever it is. We may need to go outside of ourselves sometimes to resolve something. And that's normal. And it's part of being a Christian. So don't be freaked out by that. Number Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Remember, this is right after the, the, the missionary journey we just studied last couple of weeks. So all the conversion of the Gentiles, there's great news from the mission front being shared in these meetings. But some believers, if you write in your Bible, underline that, it'll clarify something for you. Some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, still? Really? Yeah. They rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. All right, let this be a real meeting. Paul and Barnabas and some other guys have showed up in Jerusalem. And they're telling these great stories about all these Gentiles. And now I'm sure they're telling the the whole story. They're telling the story about we went and preached in one city after another. And sadly, in one city after another, the Jews rejected our message over and over. And not all of them. Now, some of them believed, but for the most part, the Jews were rejecting our message. But the Gentiles were responding and they were coming to faith. And so there's this great report being given. I don't know how many folks are gathered together here, but there's a group of people in this meeting and it says they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise. Them. I don't know if that the guy shouted out from the back of the room. But somebody felt so strongly about this. You're sharing all this good news about these Gentiles becoming believers. And I just can't help it. Somebody needs to say that this needs to be said in this meeting. They need to be circumcised to be part of the people of God. That's what needs to happen to them. Is that, is that, did that take place? Is that what you've been preaching, Paul, to these folks? Okay, this was, remember, this, 
is a meeting occurring because of debate and dissension. I'm pretty sure these are raised voices. These are folks full of emotion. They believe something like it matters. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, right? Not a little bit, but much. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Remember Paul's, uh, Peter's event in the house of Cornelius? And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's what we understand about salvation. They get saved by grace. We get saved by grace. It's not by what we do. It's by the grace of God. And all the assembly fell silent. Apparently, whatever Peter said, it made sense in a way that silenced everybody. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Then the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And the rest of the chapter is going to deal with how they disperse this word and this decision from the council as they've come together and considered what to do. Remember this context here. It's the close of the first missionary journey. They've come back excited about salvation amongst the Gentiles. The epicenter for the Christian movement now has kind of moved north. It was Jerusalem for many years, but it's moved north now to Antioch. And Antioch has become the moving and shaking church in the New Testament. It's sending out these missionary teams. It's going to continue to do that. So headquarters, if you will, has kind of shifted in a practical way. However, there are some mature Older men in the faith in Jerusalem, the apostles are there, elders in the church that's been established a longer time than Antioch is there. So there's a resource of help when conflicts arise in this setting. Now, what's, what's taking place here? Because sometimes I don't, I don't think we connect the reality of the setting. For many people in this setting, 
they don't think about religion the way we do, right? Here's how we think about religion. We think about there's Jews, you know, they're over here. There's, there's Christians, there's, you got Muslims, you got Buddhists, and we've got everybody in their own little neat compartment. In this time, there was not a compartment like that. What, when people were coming, especially Jews that were coming to know Christ, their understanding was we're just taking the next step in the story. It's the story that's been in the Old Testament all these years. And you see that in the way in which the apostles present the gospel. When they speak to Jews, they don't come in and say, hey, something totally new here, guys. All that stuff you've known, forget about it. They go back and reach into all that they've known and use it. So they reach into the teachings of Moses and the previous patterns of the people of God. And they say, Jesus is the answer to that. The people of God are now the church who put their faith and hope in him. But by the way, that's really the way it's always been. They just understood and taught the, the doctrine of justification throughout all of scripture. That's what they did. If you don't kind of catch what's happening there... Do you see how easy it would be for you to try and continue the things that have always been? Well, Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, that happened in the Old Testament. That's not like, oh my gosh, for the first time ever, they're hearing about this. No, then actually there was a way for them to come in. The Old Testament law provided for a way for Gentiles to come into being part of the people of God. Guess what was at the door that met them? Circumcision. The sign of being the people of God given to Abraham was the sign of circumcision. So doesn't it kind of make sense that if you are a person raised in that and you come to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, the plan continues. When Jesus comes, we just take the next step in the plan of God, but we don't forget about all the other steps we've taken. So there's this confusion that comes and says, okay, great, they want to they receive Christ, but the way to be a, among the people of God is to first be circumcised and to observe the laws of Moses. Because remember, the laws of Moses made the people of God distinct from all the earth. The heathen world was full of idols. It was full of sinful fornication. It was full of sacrifices to these idols. So if you're a person who understands we're God's people, God sent his son, that God who's always been our God sent his son, there's this sense that we're just taking the next step in the kingdom of God to receive the long-awaited Messiah. And if you want to be part of God's people, you got to do some of this. You've got to be circumcised. That's what we've always understood. And you have to observe the, the teachings of Moses. You just can't keep doing this heathen stuff. You notice when they get back to the heathen stuff at the end here. As a matter of fact, they don't just get back to it. They don't even overlook it. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that next week. But they actually look into the Gentile world and say, okay, this is what we're doing. We're not going to trouble them by putting upon them a misunderstanding of how the law is supposed to operate. But we are going to ask them to stop doing these lifestyle issues. Right, so you've got Jews who bring their own traditions in. And amongst them are Gentiles who are bringing their traditions. And they just look quite different. The Jewish traditions were circumcision, observing the law of Moses. The Gentile traditions and ways of life were fornication, associating with idols, eating meat that had blood in it. Right, so they adjust both of these. So that's going to be interesting next week for us to look a little bit at how that happens. But it's very helpful to understand this is in the church. I think it's safe to say many, 
I can't say all, but many of the people that are the source of this controversy, you can't pull them out of the church and make them these barbarians. I mean, they, they were there to submarine the Christian faith. They were there to, to bring as much pollution and tainted ideas as they could. They were teaching this error, and they knew they were teaching this error. You know, listen, that, that makes it a whole lot easier. Somebody you know, just, just gets up in the midst of the life of the church, begins to subvert. They're not even a believer. They don't submit to Christ. They're heretical in what they, what they view. That person's real easy to deal with. You know who's a challenge to deal with? The person who really is a believer who has some wrong ideas. That's who these guys are. I think that's who most of them are. Ken Hughes, in his commentary, says, Pharisaic Christians, right? And you can put those two words together in verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, Pharisaic Christians, were not intrinsically evil. If they had worn horns, it would have been so much easier. They had genuinely come to know Christ, and their faith had cost them dearly but they were also the product of their upbringing. It was natural for some of them to find it difficult to make a clean break with, the past, with their past as Pharisees. Though Christians, they could not bring themselves to give away centuries of distinctives that had set their people apart from the world. So with good intentions, they thrust those distinctives and traditions onto others. I think if you read it that way, it, it, it really changes a little bit about how we deal with issues like this. If they're a hostile group, they're not even Christians, they're just there to teach heresy. That's one feel. But what if they really are believers? What, what, if, what if they're like all of us, they've come to a decision out of the revelation of God that they, they see enough to be saved, but they don't see it all. They see enough to be saved, but they don't see enough to stop believing some of the things they've always believed. What what if that's what's happening here with these guys? I think sometimes we don't make sufficient room for that. Somehow we've got this idea, and and the idea is so foreign to any of our experience here. We, We get this idea that someone who is really, really saved, if you're really saved... It's almost as though you make this decision and like your hard drive gets wiped out. You know, it's like God just scratches the hard drive and everything accurate and true gets installed in that moment. And you understand everything correctly now. And all those old practices of your life, they're all gone. Now we don't, none of us believe that personally because that's been none of our experience. Right? We, we came to know Christ uh, right, listen, I mean, I, I came to know Christ from a Catholic background. That's what I was grown up in here in New Orleans. So when I had an encounter with Christ that was biblically, that regenerated my soul, um, you know what? That brought a new zeal and desire toward God in my heart. And the only tools I had in my life to build with were the ideas I'd grown up with. And so I started using those to build with. It's, it's all I understood. Right, so I'm a teenager. I'm, I've come to Christ. I know that my life is different. Sin patterns have changed. I have a hunger and a zeal for God. I'm reading the Bible. So I start going to Mass, just consistently involved in Mass. It's the only thing I knew. The, uh, there, was a, there was a church being relocated, I think, or built in Kenner. 
And so it was a Catholic church being built in Kenner. So, I mean, I get involved in helping renovate the building that they're going to be doing. I get involved in the, uh, the high school youth organization. That was a real interesting experience because God has turned my world upside down. And I'm sitting in this CYO meeting and the, the priest is going around and ask, he's asking everybody, so, so why, why are you here? And, you know, one person after another is answering with, with questions like, my parents made me come. And the next one, you know, uh, my parents said if I wanted to have the car this week and I had to come. I mean, just one after another had these lame reasons for being there. And I'm sitting there with, with my friend. I'm thinking, okay, at some point this is going to come to me and, and, and I'm going to sound like a stinking weirdo because uh, I like want to be here. And it was, so it was this awkward meeting to be a part of. But I, I just, I met Christ and I just reached for the throttle and did that with it. And whatever was in my life became full speed at that moment. And so I prayed rosaries and I, I mean, I just did all kinds of stuff just trying to go full speed with whatever I knew. And that's what these guys were doing. It's interesting that it says believers... Right? But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, I don't, I don't think you can conclude whether that meant they used to belong and then they got saved. But, but how many of you think that these guys who sincerely in their heart believed in Phariseeism, the deep practice of religious devotion of a Pharisee, and they meet Christ and they genuinely become saved, does everything become clear in that moment? And they go, we, I've got to stop being a Pharisee. I can't be a part of this anymore. Or does that happen a year from now or two years from now, or four years from now? Because these believers who belonged, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they got saved and stayed in the party of being a Pharisee. Kept attending the meetings. Kept talking to guys. Kept sincerely wanting to be a part of what the Pharisees were about. Because in their mind... Christianity was the continuation of what they've always believed. They finally saw it. And it just continues to take the next step. Now, that's in our midst. Right? There's people who come to know Christ. That, you know, let me just encourage us. Be wise and careful. Be informed by the Bible here. Don't come to somebody and, and, and you hear them pull out something from their religious tradition and immediately you kind of draw the conclusion that, well, if, if that's still in your life, you're not really a Christian. Really? Re- really? So when did your doctrine, mature believer, become that you can have some error in your life and therefore you can't be a Christian? Really? Is that how it works? That until all your doctrine is correct, I mean, sure, you, you put your faith in Christ, but the jury is still out. I'm sorry. You know, Yeah. Keith, in 1979, you transferred your hope for salvation to the person and work of Christ. But it might be many years until you clean up your doctrine, until you really actually are saved. Is that, how, is that what we believe? Is that how we treat people? So let's, let's be wise and careful. There were Pharisees sitting in the church who had come to know Christ, and they really were believers. But there is a huge controversy here. As much as I want us to be careful and be wise and respectful of, of where people are coming from, these are fighting words. There's something in this passage that needs to be fought over, right? And so this subject comes up, revival's taking place, and some people with maybe some well intentions step in and say, hey, they need to be circumcised and observe the laws of Moses. And they jump in, and their language is pretty strong, right? Uh, unless, you, unless you're circumcised, 
according to the custom of you cannot be saved. Whoa, 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 whoa. Those are fighting words. And Paul and Barnabas get wind of that. And the teeth and the claws come out. And they go after this, this issue, right? What's the source of this controversy? Well, the, the source is the debate over circumcision. It's going to pop up in a few places here. That doorway into being the people of God. The debate is over that. Um, issue. Issue. Remember this. Because there's a realm in which Christianity, I said this a couple weeks ago, it picks a fight with other belief systems. That's what it does. That's why when you share the gospel, if you're just hoping for happy, we all get along, this is how you can turn the gospel into that. If that's the kind of conversation you want to have, don't require anybody to turn from anything. Just let them know that you've got something that they can just add to whatever they're doing. If you want to make Christianity comfortable for everybody you talk to to have them consider it, don't require conversion. Don't require anybody to turn from anything. If they, if they want to live this way, well, you just tell them Jesus is a great source of blessing. He loves you. He'll, he'll come with you for the ride wherever you're going. And he will, he will help you and he will care for you and he will be your best friend. Jesus is a friend of sinners. But that's not what Christianity proclaims. This is why controversy comes because someone stands up. I mean, how easy would it have been in this Jerusalem council to say, Hey, look, I know we got some folks here who really think that, uh, circumcision and observing the customs of Moses, they really feel strongly about that. Hey, that's, that's cool. You know, you guys, that's all right. You guys keep doing that. That's okay. Just remember Jesus and all that he did. Just, you know, he's there for you. He loves you, loves you. He's going to be there for you in the hard times. Just remember that. Wouldn't it have been easy? We don't even have to have this council. Paul and Barnabas don't need to go to Jerusalem and bring people with them and make an argument before a big group of leaders. Just let these guys believe what they're believing. But he can't. Because Christianity requires a conversion. It requires a turning. And this is one of those things that you have to turn from. Now, there are some things here. Uh, you know, long hair, short hair, tattoos, no tattoos. All right, you don't got to turn from that stuff. But this, you have to turn from this. So when Paul and Barnabas bump into the idea that we just, we just want to add something to the belief in Christ, timeout gets called, we're going to fight over this. I just want you to know, we're going to fight over this and it's going to get as ugly as it needs to get because there, there is no room for that idea alongside the gospel. So these became fighting words, and they were familiar fighting words. In other places in Scripture, the same issue seems to come up. First Timothy chapter 1 in your outline there. Now, time frame, uh, Acts chapter 15 is about A.D. 49. First Timothy is about A.D. 63. So we're about 15 years apart here, and this debate is still hot, and it's still happening. Paul says in First Timothy chapter 1, certain persons... By swerving from these, like the solid right doctrines, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Right? So even 15 years later, you still have some people who want to be teachers of the law. They want to bring their traditions of teachings about the law to bear on the Christian life. They still want to do that. They still see it as necessary. And they make confident assertions, which is a reflection of what happened in Acts chapter 15. These folks ran in behind all these Gentiles and made confident assertions. You want to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be circumcised. That was a confident assertion. That's how the system works. And you have to do it that way. And debate breaks out amongst Christians and they make confident assertions there. 15 years later, that's still happening. But here, there's an interesting little phrase here. Be helpful for some New Testament Christians to fall in love with verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So it wasn't wrong for anybody to teach from the law. It was wrong for you to use it wrong. It was wrong for you to pick the law up and use it in people's lives in a way that was full of error. And that's what they did. Now turn to Galatians with me for a moment here. Because where does this problem come from? Galatians, remember we we learned the last couple of weeks, the churches that Paul spent time with in his first missionary journey are the churches in Galatia. So interesting how he's preached, these Gentiles have come to faith, this controversy breaks out, they've got to be circumcised, this teaching is being given, it's like Paul made the circuit, and these Judaizers ran in behind him to adjust, not to cancel what he taught, to adjust what he taught. So they come in behind Paul's missionary trip and begin to teach that, well, you know, but you do need to be circumcised and observe the customs of Moses if you're going to be a Christian. You have to do that. And so that's circulating here, and Paul is going to respond to it in the letter to the Galatians. So this is how all this is related. Now, he's going to explain something about the correct use of the law. The law is good if you use it right. That's what he says. Well, let's learn how to use it right for a second. Look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. And listen, carefully, if you've not read Galatians carefully, uh, you should read Galatians very, very carefully. Um, It touches at the heart of an issue that separates every belief system from Christianity. Not just Judaism, every belief system from true Christianity. When you are talking with somebody, ultimately, let me just say this, ultimately, people are trying to get right with God. Whatever they're calling that in life, they're trying to get right with God. Outside of themselves is a being that has sort of injected into this world a sense of our wrongness. People's conscience tell them that there's something wrong with me. So ultimately, they're trying to get right with God. There's... Ultimately, only two ways philosophically to do that. One of them is what you can do to get right with God. And the other one is what God does for you to get right with God. There's only two ways. You can't add another one to that. Philosophically, that's the only two things that can exist. And that's the debate here in Galatians chapter 3. And so let's read this carefully. And I'll just make a few highlights, but you can go back and chew on this whole book, if you will, right? Verse one of chapter three starts with, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How did you get tricked into believing this? Because some people now are believing that they, they have to do these things in addition to what they believed about Christ. Look in verse 10, right? Remember what they've believed is they've got to 
They've got to be circumcised to be Christians. They've got to preserve the laws of Moses. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Right? Here's this principle, right? There's ultimately two principles. There's the human being doing principle and there's the God doing principle. Right? Those are the only two ways that you can come up with. How does people who are wrong get right with God? Well, either you got to do something to get right with God or God's going to have to do something for you to make things right. That's the only two possible ways. But way number one is clearly spelled out here. All who rely on works of the law. That means things that I do to observe some form of a code out there somewhere. How do I know that I'm doing the things that I need to do to get right with God? Well, I pick up the law and I use it to accomplish that. It came from God. Moses gave it to us and it was God's word. So I picked that up, but then Galatians says all, not just a few, all who rely on works of the law, you're actually under a curse. You haven't picked something up that's going to bless you. You've actually picked up a snake. It's going to curse you. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's kind of redundant sounding. You abide by them and you do them. It's redundant because we needed to hear that because this is what people do. They pick up these principles of what I must do and they they put footnotes at the bottom of it. And their footnotes say, well, I'm intending to do all of it. I mean, I've, I've tried, this is how it sounds. I've tried to do the best I can. Okay, well, you know what? The, this principle that you've picked up, it doesn't care whether you've tried. It only cares whether you succeeded. And it cares how often you succeeded and whether you succeeded at 100%. Because what does it say? Careful. Curse be everyone. Some? No, everyone. Who does not abide by all things. All things. See, once you pick up the law and you say, this is my way to God. Well, all right. If you want to sign on for it, here's how it works. You have to abide all the time by all things. You actually have to do them. You can't intend to do them. You can't be sincere. You can't say you'd like to. You can't use this kind of phrase, which I hear from people so often in the religious community. Well, you know, I've tried to be a good person. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect. You just, you just now violated the thing you've picked up. Those two things mean you're cursed. That's what that means. You tried, but you didn't do 100%. You're cursed. I was well-intended, yes, but you didn't do them. And you, didn't, you said you weren't perfect, right? Well, if you had done them all, you would be perfect. But since you didn't do them all, you're not perfect. And according to this method now, in the Bible, you're cursed. That's your condition. So this is sobering. This is why this is fighting words. This is why Paul leaps up when he hears somebody say, hey, we've got this idea. You just need to do. Oh, wait, wait. What did you just say? You need to do in order to be saved? You? You just located what you need to do in the formula of salvation? Paul comes to life. No, 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 no. No, what you just picked up means you need to do it all. And you need to do it all the time. And you just can't be sincere and well-intended. That's what you've picked up. If you're going to do it, you've got to do it all, all the time. And you've got to actually pull it off. 
Otherwise, you're cursed. That's why he's teaching this in Galatians. That's why he's dragging people to Jerusalem from Antioch and say, hey, we need to talk about this. This is serious. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's what the Bible always taught. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Right? Jesus stepped in the way and took the curse of our failing to keep the law. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, oh, what the heck is that? The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right, two approaches to God I put in your outline. Number one is relying on works of the law in that man does the doing. Anytime you find yourself discussing salvation and you have man doing the doing, you are relying on the works of the law in scripture. And you are under a curse and you are not justified before God. Facts. Number two is Righteousness received by faith where God does the doing. And the example of that is Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Abraham, you just follow this story with me? Very important. Abraham, if you go back to Genesis 12 and you discover a man named Abraham, he is an idol worshiper in the land of Ur. He is worshiping false gods. He is, he is not earning God's activity in his life. And God shows up in his life. Unannounced, unearned grace shows up in this man's life. And just announces to him, hey, stranger, you. Yeah, you. I'm the God of the universe. Of course, you wouldn't know anything about that because you're worshiping the moon. But... Um, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And God begins to pronounce these promises upon him. God is already in motion. God's already doing. God's already got a plan. You understand in time when God, God stands outside of time. So when God makes a promise, it's already done. So he's promising Abraham all this stuff that's already done. Abraham doesn't even know who God is. What did Abraham do? Okay, <laughs> that was it. He just believed God. All right, if you say so. <laughs> he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Where did his righteousness come from? From getting circumcised? Oh, well, God was going to give him the symbol of belonging to him as circumcision. God was going to give him that. Is that where his righteousness came from? Before Abraham ever was circumcised or anybody after him was ever circumcised, he was already righteous. Because God had just declared him so because he took God at his word. I believe you. And by faith, he received righteousness. Now, if you want to get even more detail on this, because Abraham asked God the question, God, how do I know these things are going to be true? I do believe you, but how do I know? And remember in Genesis 15, there is this strange ceremony that takes place. In order for God 
to prove to Abraham that these things would be true, God enters into a, a covenant with Abraham. He tells Abraham, go off and get these animals and cut them in half and lay them side by side. You got this nighttime scene that's coming and these animals have been cut open and there's a ceremony where they're just laying there. If you go back and read Genesis 15, go back and tell me who does the doing in Genesis chapter 15. Who does the doing? You remember the story? It says Abraham slept. It's interesting. God's doing amazing stuff. These famous people of God are all sleeping, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, what are these guys doing? Sleeping. Abraham, the the covenant of all covenants is being made. What are you doing? I was a little tired. (laughs) Sleeping, right? So if you have problems with your devotions, you're in in good company. (laughs) But it says that this presence of God represented by a smoking fire pot Passed between the pieces and promises were made. There were no promises made by Abraham. And Abraham never passed through the pieces. God did all the doing. And made a covenant with Abraham based on what God would do. That had just simply been received by a guy going, okay, I believe you. That was it. No work, no righteousness of his own. Just receiving. So that's what he points back to here. Look in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it. Because actually, quite honestly, these guys in, in Acts 15, they weren't seeking to annul what Jesus Christ had done. They were just seeking to add to it, which is very important to see. No one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And remember, he's talking about the covenant that happened that night with Abraham. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. And this is an amazing thing. I won't go into this, but how amazing that the Bible holds together even with one letter. Here's a man who can preach the Bible and say one letter makes a difference. And the Bible's true and it holds together. He says, not offsprings, but offspring, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. The offspring of Abraham would be the person of Jesus Christ in whom the ultimate promise would be fulfilled and we would be in covenant with God based on him. That's what Abraham was starting. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise, right? Timeline. God interrupts the idol worshiper Abraham. Reveals himself to him. Says, I'm going to bless you. This is a done deal. It's a promise. I believe you. Covenant ceremony takes place. God does all the doing. Time travels on. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, into Egypt, blah, 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 blah. 430 years later, a man named Moses ascends a mountain and receives some stone tablets. The law of God gets revealed and he brings it back to the people. Paul says, how have you understood what that was? Judaizers. Did you think God was doing something different now? You think God had done something back here with Abraham, but now there's this new thing. Back here, you could be an idol worshiper who God just revealed himself and you could be pronounced righteous having never done a righteous thing in your life. But over here, 
did you think that God gave you a set of rules so that now you could now do righteous things and then God could tell you you're okay? Is that what you think happened? Is that how you understood the, the Old Testament? He says, this didn't undo that. This didn't cancel that out. That wasn't like that was just temporary. That was a 430 year deal. Now this is the deal. It's all about what you do. And here, it was all about what God did on your behalf. Over here, it's all about what you do. You got to do what you got to do. If you want to be saved, you're going to have to do what you got to do. I don't know if I wrote this in your outline. Sinai does not replace or negate Abraham. The only means of approaching God is still Abraham's way. God did not give the law at Sinai as an alternative to Abraham or because the Abraham way had expired. The Abraham way is still in place and it continues in place. As a matter of fact, it continues in place to today. It is still the way anyone comes into right relationship with God. Remember our two ultimate ways? It's either by what you do or it's by what God does. Abraham came to God by what God had done. The covenant given at Sinai is not a competitive different idea. And to use the law in a way that becomes you got to do in order for God to receive is a misuse of the law. That's what Paul's after here in Galatians. So verse 19, well, why then the law? Why 430 years later, the law? It was added. It was not changing anything. It was just added because of transgressions until the, the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made until Jesus came. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is Sinai contrary to Abraham? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, not those who perform, not those who have their, uh, the circumcision rites and the practices of Moses down. Those who believe would receive righteousness. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, right? The law was like a person who has guardianship of a child and watches over them and keeps them in bounds, if you will, until the day comes where faith receives the promise. The guardian was never the means of receiving the promise. The guardian was just that, a guardian. Right? I don't know if any of you guys have this situation in your life. If 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 you were a child who was blessed with an estate that was given to you as a child, that was probably left in the hands of a guardian. That the guardian isn't the means of that. The promise given to you by whoever gave it to you was the means of that. But you're, you're not ready to receive it yet. You need to grow to a place to be able to receive it by faith. That's what the law did. So Paul's trying to explain, you're misusing the law. The law was never intended to be a ladder for you to climb on. It was intended to guard you until you came to faith in Christ. 24. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, made right by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise, just like he was. So, all right, well then, what's the purpose for these traditions of Moses and the circumcision and these laws? What was, it, what was the purpose of giving Sinai? Two things I'd say. One, to reveal the righteousness of God. Right? The law was given because of sin. Because of the ways of man. So distinct, so different from the righteousness of God that failed to see the righteousness of God amongst their own sins. So the law was given to reveal, this is what righteousness looks like. Your, your sinful world is so polluted and corrupt. Here's what... Here's what righteousness looks like in a human being. You'd love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You wouldn't commit adultery. You wouldn't commit murder. Right? It's just a revelation of this is what the righteousness of God looks like in a human being. It's not a means of saving you. It's a revelation of righteousness. But what that revelation of righteousness also does is it, is it makes you realize I'm a sinner. And I fall short. I'm, I'm not these things. And if you're telling me what's true here, if I've got to be these things, I've got to be them all the time. Not just intend to be them. Not just try to be them. I actually have to be them all the time. And I have to be them from the heart. Well, then I'm disqualified. Yes, you are. And the guardian has just protected you from saving yourself. It has led you to conclude that your only hope is to trust in the one who's coming who will keep the law perfectly because it's who he is. Sometimes when we use the term keep the law, it's almost like Jesus felt like, oh, great, I got to get up in the morning and do that law thing. You understand, that's not how the law is good. Jesus didn't feel that way about the law. He's God. It was the natural expression of God's life in man to do all these things. Get up feeling the burden of that. Now you and I feel the burden of it because of the fallenness of us. Here's where this letter turns and it gets a little difficult. The law does not reveal a plan that humans can perform human acts in order to justify themselves before God. That's a misuse of the law. So when Paul hears, you must do, as soon as he hears that, and you should be the same way. As soon as you hear, you must do in order to be saved, the claws come out. And he comes to life because you have just taken people out of God's means of saving them and you've transferred them into human activity that saves them and therefore they're under a curse. Teacher, you just move people under a curse by what you just said to them. And that's why he comes out with his claws. See, in this category, this is not a category where Paul says, hey, if you want to believe that, you can believe that. You cannot believe that because if you do believe that, you are cursed for believing that. So Galatians, if you make this human act to be associated with what makes a person right with God, then you have fallen from grace, Galatians 5, 2. And you are no longer preaching the gospel, Galatians 1, 6. And you are cut off from God. 
those are truths worth fighting over. We can't accommodate a view that's different than that. And let me, let me show you how important this is. If you start, I think, where you're supposed to start in understanding the Galatian issue, the Judaizer issue, these are not people who are coming and saying, oh, that Jesus was a false prophet. I mean, he wasn't even a real person. I mean, it's been 15 years since, you know, it's been 20, 30 years. He, he didn't even really exist. Some people made this up. It's all a big hoax. If you want to get right with God, you do this. That's not what they were saying. They were taking who Jesus was and what he did and accepting it and just adding something to it. They were just saying, in addition to what Christ has done, you must do. They had just took a piece of this idea and tried to import it into God saving people by grace. And sirens went off on this topic. Because it places you under a curse. Ken Hughes had a very interesting observation. He says, they were not bad people at this point. But given time... Their views, tightly held, would pull them so far away from the doctrine of grace that they would become apostate. We all are influenced by our backgrounds. Each of us has experienced some doctrinal or practical distortion because of past experience or environment. The challenge is to identify those points of error or misemphasis. Two things, and they're a little bit different, before we drift too far away from Christ. History and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. Did you hear that? Anything that ever dares to get close to, flirt with, co-requirement, you must do, eventually shoves faith aside and becomes the defining thing through which people are saved. And I... And you are bumping into this in your conversations with people, and I am too. I had I told part of this story before. I had some Jehovah Witnesses come to the door. We, we get them regularly. And two ladies that came a few months ago came, and I just decided to let them give me their spiel for a while. Just see where they went. I just want to see where's this going to go. You know, they open up with the typical, do you think the world's got problems? That's kind of where they start. And yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Got a lot of problems. Yeah, you watch the news and we're all in agreement. Yeah, the world's a difficult, terrible place. So, I mean, my response to them was, well, how does God solve this? What is God's solution to these problems amongst all of humanity? So they talk and talk and talk and talk. And after about 15 minutes of answering that question that I just gave to them, I finally stopped them. I said, look, ladies, I've really let y'all talk a long time. You know what I find interesting is in, in the last 15 minutes here, you have not mentioned Jesus Christ, what he did or who he was one time. All you've told me about is what I need to do to make my life different and everybody else's life different and all the obedience that needs to happen in this world and people need to obey God. And, you know, do I, do I read the Bible and do I witness and tell people? All you've told me is about what we need to do. You haven't told me anything about what Christ has done. Now, immediately they sort of backpedal a little bit. You know, it's kind of like, well, well, yeah, uh, you know, all of a sudden now they want to include Christ in there somewhere because that sounds like they probably ought to. The next guy who came did almost the same exact thing, but I went in a different route with him. But after our conversation for about 25 minutes, he was back with the same stuff. Everything he had to say was about what we had to do. See, because the second you make what we do 
part of the equation. It will shove faith aside. And next thing you know, all you're going to be talking about is what we do. All right, every, nobody get up and walk out on me right now, okay? All right, I'm, I, we live in New Orleans. I was raised Catholic. I was taught about what we do a lot. I was taught about practicing sacraments. The practice of the sacraments is something that I did. It was something I was supposed to do. It was something that was right to do. There's an emphasis on, on sort of moral responsibility in Catholicism. There's an emphasis on participation in the traditions of the church and being involved with those things. There's a great deal of emphasis on what you're supposed to do. I was very aware of that growing up. I, I, I was much more aware of what I was supposed to do. So much so that it kind of begins to shove faith and salvation through grace aside. And it becomes the feature thing. And so, you know, being a, a believer, being a pastor, I kind of have the opportunity to get called into relatives and people's lives in their dying moments. It's amazing to me. It's, it's sad to me. It brings tears to me when I sit with somebody on the verge of death and I talk to them about their eternity and their being right with God. And they tell me over and over again in great depth what they have done in their life. Their explanation is always about what they've done. You know, I ask them the question, hey, are you at peace with facing God? Should this end in death? Are you, are you going to be okay? And they're immediately, do you know how they answer that? They immediately begin to tell me about the life they've lived and what they've done. To be with family members who put a great deal of hope in last rites, make sure they administer last rites to me. Make sure. Because they're afraid if they don't do all that they got to do, they don't know what might come from that. The emphasis is on what they do. It's not on what Christ has done. It's not on the finishness of what Christ has done. It's not a posture like Abraham that God has done. God, you walk through the pieces. You made this promise. You took the punishment. You give forgiveness. I just believe you. Keith, what's your hope if you die tomorrow? I just believe what God said about his son and what he did on my behalf. Well, Keith, how do you do? Well, you know, I I hope I lived in light of that, but that's not going to be the issue when I stand before God. It's not going to be about what I did. Let me just normalize it because I know right now I'm making some people really uncomfortable because I'm messing with your background. Right, can, you, can you let that be normal? Can you let the fact that people should mess with your background be normal? In Acts chapter 15, there were a bunch of sincere people. They were sincere. They were part of the church. They were Pharisees. There's someone dressed in robes. Their whole background, their family, everything about them was defined by their Judaism and their Pharisaical background. And somebody stands up in the church and says, dude, dude, you're the one who keeps saying we've got to be circumcised. I'm taking you to court. Let's go to Jerusalem and debate this thing out, man. You can't keep believing that. And Paul's fangs come out over this issue. If you're sitting here today and you're believing that it's, yeah, you don't reject Christ because no one around Christianity rejects Christ. And these guys didn't either. I didn't reject Christ growing up. 
The emphasis for me was wrong. The emphasis was on what I needed to do. You know what I didn't know? I didn't know that if I'm like the Galatians and you just move the emphasis onto what you need to do, you're under a curse. It's not just an okay belief. You actually have migrated under a curse now. You are living under a curse. So I can't stand here before you and say, if you believe in Jesus, but you also believe in sacraments or any other thing that you've got to do, you're okay. I can't say that to you. Acts chapter 15 was written for the whole purpose that we would not say that to each other. The the letter of Galatians was written to scream at us and say, never, never pollute those two. It's not a small mistake. It's a giant mistake. It's a life-canceling mistake. It's a cursing mistake. It's not a small thing. So I hope, man, if you're here today, and you genuinely would answer your rightness with God based on something about what you've done and how you've lived and the best intentions of your heart, you will feel the warning light going off in your life right now. You are in a horrible location. It doesn't feel horrible. It feels well-intended. Listen, these Galatians were well-intended. Acts chapter 15, those guys debating Paul and Barnabas were well-intended. But they were so wrong that Paul had to set this thing right immediately. He didn't do that with everything. There's tons of stuff here in the Bible that just don't get dealt with. This gets dealt with. This is worth fighting over. This is worth you hating me right now. This is worth you walking out of this building saying, I ain't never coming to this church ever again. So I hope you'll receive it as important as the Bible has made. I make this stuff up. I remember, I'm just following Acts here. I'm not picking a fight with you. I'm just teaching Acts 15. It was next. Sorry. I know it's awkward. But I'm not asking you to face any awkwardness that I didn't have to face in my own life. I was cloaked in Pharisee robes at some point. And these ideas came to me and turned my world upside down too. And they called on me to turn and believe them. And they still call out today to every one of us here. All right, let me conclude this way. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up here. What, what if you're a believer here today? You really are a believer. I'll probably go into this a little bit more next week. But you, you, you aren't making correct use of the law. The law is there for a reason. It's in your life for a reason. But for you, it's, it's become something that measures you and makes you feel disqualified before God. It's become something it was not intended to be. All right, two questions. Do you treat human actions that obey the law as something that gives you your sense of rightness with God? Have you become a Christian and being, been living your life like your rightness with God is based on Christ plus you keeping a code? Code might be the Ten Commandments. Code might be the Christian things you hear us encouraging you to do. Read the Bible. Pray. Witness. Serve. The role that you're called to play. As a father or a pastor. As a mother or provider. Do, does success in those areas equate to me feeling like God is, God is more accepting of me? God is more on my side now. Listen, I know... Most of us are taught, don't ever think that way. But 
yet we walk around feeling the weight of our life. Like that's exactly what we're thinking. We won't confess it, but we live it that way. Right here, be, be freed by this. Just a great quote from Tully and Chavidian. He says, if we're not careful, we can give people the impression that Christianity is first and foremost about the sacrifice we make for Jesus rather than the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Our performance for him rather than his performance for us. Our obedience for him rather than his obedience for us. Don't get me wrong. What we do is important, but it is infinitely less important than what Jesus has done for us. So you can be a Christian here today and all of a sudden you find yourself laboring under this law. And it's not the law of circumcision. It's just some other code that you've placed yourself under that measures you. Are you keeping the traditions of Moses? Well, maybe you've maybe you got to keep the traditions of being a man from some book, man book you read, right? You guys read a man book lately? Oh, man books can, I mean, I, sometimes I pick them up and they weigh 8,000 pounds. When I'm done, I feel like I am a loser. I'm just a big thinking loser, man. I don't know if I do half of what this stuff is very well. Well, there's nothing wrong with that teaching me and helping me. But if it starts making me feel like this gives me some kind of access to God when I pull this stuff off right, you and I have become sort of like those Pharisees. And we, we're believing in the work Jesus did, but, but really to kind of activate that work, to kind of make it what it's supposed to be, it's, it's got to be about what I do. So you, you might not be under a curse as a result of that, but you feel it. You feel cursed because your life feels very heavy. Living by the code. Listen, this morning, let's ask God to help us see this together. Let's stand up together. Well, this was a big event in scripture. This was a big day for the church. It was a watershed moment. The future about what was acceptable and what was not was hanging in the balance in this moment. A clash of philosophies about how does man achieve righteousness before God was in this debate. Lord, you wrote this down. So that today we would, again, have this discussion, have this debate, for we are in this topic just as they were. Lord, there are some here this morning who perhaps have come to realize, I am more aware and emphasizing what I do to be right with God than trusting in the promise that God made to Abraham and he makes through his son, Jesus Christ to me in the New Testament. Or for any here this morning who've become convinced of that, Lord, would right now they break, they, would they turn from, would they convert from the idea that it's, it's their praying, it's their religious activity, it's their trying to be right It's there trying to live a life that has enough pleasing qualities to it. It's there attending their religious setting. It's their sacraments or their personal sacrifices or anything else that they do 
Lord, this morning, would you help them to turn from that and renounce any hope in what they have done and to stand like Abraham stood, watching God do all the work and just say, okay, God, I believe that and I receive it. Lord, this morning, would you touch lives this morning? That's the impartation of righteousness. Lord, make righteous today. Make right with you today. Completely right, 100% right. As right as they're ever going to get right. Make it happen right here this morning as folks turn from trusting something about themselves to trusting only in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Your work, your forgiveness received by faith. And Father, for those of us who would say, yeah, my, my heart agrees. I, I, don't, I don't trust in something I'm doing. I completely put my hope in Christ. But yet I'm here this morning and something about my life feels like it weighs a thousand pounds. Or would you liberate us from creating codes that we try to live our lives by for the wrong reasons. Lord, it's not, it's not a problem to aim at something. It's just a problem when we begin to treat it like it's going to accomplish something between us, between you and us. That was already accomplished by the cross. If we're seeking to do that, Lord, I, I, pray, for, I pray for young people in this room, Lord, who are trying to live up to the expectations of, of their parents thinking that they do what pleases mom and dad, somehow that's going to make them more right with you or the expectations of the church. Somehow if I live my life in a way that looks like the code of Lakeview Christian Center, I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. Me and God will be on better terms. Lord, you liberate young people from that kind of an idea. You liberate men in this room who live under the failures of being men who prize their families and lead their wives and raise their children and serve in the church. Well, these are good things and we want to aim at all of them, Lord, but we don't, we don't want to try and achieve you through them. So God, rescue us. Rescue us from being these people. Lord, this is a subject worth fighting over. Let us fight for this in our midst, Lord, to be a people who see grace accurately. So Lord, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for this gathering this morning to hear this important word. Lord, this was a historic moment for them. And really, God, it's a historic moment for us. So God, let us leave from this place affected by the depth of this word. Before I say amen, can you guys just, I want you to just notice something. Because I felt this. I felt this in speaking to you. That when I got us digging into Galatians chapter 3, I could, I could feel the room where some folks were with it and some folks were just going, too much, man, too much. It's too much. Um, like my attention is drifting. I'm not, I'm not there with you. You know, you kind of, that, that's it's a bunch of complicated things. You got Abraham involved and you got this law thing and all that going on. All right, listen, can I, can I tell you this? 
It's what Paul wrote to everyday people to rescue them from the event that took place in Acts chapter 15. If you felt like that was over your head, I I can't rescue you from that then. If you don't get Abraham and whatever the heck it was I was describing over here, if you're like, hey, something like Abraham, a bunch of animals being cut out, what the heck? If you don't get that, then you can't be set free in this area. It's what Paul pointed to to liberate people. So this is where we can't be a people who treat this like it's secondary information. What got taught in Galatians is for a bunch of people living in the American suburbs today who are too stinking busy to pick their Bibles up. And if you'd like to sit underneath the weight of guilt just for another day because you stink at being a parent and you're lazy and you've lost your job again and your family's paying the price for it, you want to keep living underneath that? Because it's one thing to feel the difficulty of that. It's another thing to feel the condemnation of it. To where that thing weighs a thousand pounds. You know how you get the thousand pounds off of you? You read Galatians chapter 3 and you get it. But I'm serious. If you... If you got lost while I was reading through Galatians 3, it's not because this is a college course. You've got to pick your Bible up. Amen? Amen. All right. Love you guys. Have a great, great week.